Well, good morning. This has been a long time since I've been in here. Normally I'm up in room four, but Charles is preaching in Alta this week. And so he asked if I would cover down here. And so for today, y'all get to uh, join in with the, um, with the first session for our study in the book of Chronicles. We finished up Luke a couple of weeks ago, and now we're going to move into First and Second Chronicles while y'all in here continue on in Deuteronomy. There's handouts in the back here in the center section so that y'all can follow along. This morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at an overview of the book, and I'm going to pretty consistently refer to it as a book. Um, and we'll get into that here in a moment. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, you gave this book so that the, the people of Israel would be able to have hope in the midst of frustration, in the midst of uh, realizing the heights from which they had fallen because of disobedience and rebellion. And so, Lord, today as we, as we begin our study, uh, help us to see your faithfulness, your loving kindness, your um, commitment to the covenant that you had set with your people. Thank you that you have extended that to us, that you have grafted us into the natural tree, that we may actually have the benefits as well of salvation and, and the inheritance that was not rightfully ours to begin with. And so, Father, help us to have grateful hearts as we study this. In Christ's name, amen. No one knows who wrote the book of Chronicles. Um, Jewish tradition has it that it was Ezra, there is some reason for that. When you get to the end of the book of Chronicles, you'll find uh, the relation of the return. It's almost verbatim, although not quite verbatim, to the very beginning of the book of Ezra. And so uh, it has been com become common instead of to refer to the author of Chronicles simply as the chronicler, since we don't know who he is it's not listed in the text, and frankly, if it's not listed in the text, then it wasn't crucial for us to know who he was. If it was crucial, we'd be given that information. The date of the book um, is also somewhat vague. The earliest date is going to be around 400 BC. Now, the way that we get that date is that in the book there are a bunch of genealogies. There are a bunch of lists of this guy was the ancestor of this guy who's the ancestor of this guy. Uh, we're going to get into that here more in a little bit. There are eight generations listed past Jehoiachin. Now Jehoiachin was the last uh, king. It depends on who you talk to, even in the Old Testament. Um, when Jehoiachin was deposed and taken away to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar in um, 597, his uncle Zedekiah was placed as king. He was basically installed as king by Nebuchadnezzar. That was not universally recognized in Israel, in Judah. So for instance, when you read in Ezekiel, you will never see Ezekiel refer to Zedekiah as the king. He's always referred to as the prince because in Ezekiel's mind, Jehoiachin was the king in exile. Now, it wasn't because Jehoiachin was a good guy. He wasn't. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's why he got deposed after just a few months and hauled off to Babylon. But the idea here is it was through Jehoiachin was the, that line coming down from David. Now there's a problem with Jehoiachin's kids, specifically his sons. 
Anybody remember what that problem is? And I'm speaking of in terms of Messiah. Messiah is going to be a continuation of the line of David, right? What's the problem at Jehoiachin? Right. God said, write this man down childless. There's a break in the kingly line for Messiah at Jehoiachin. So it's not going to be a blood descendant from Jehoiachin. It will come through David, but not through Jehoiachin. But there are eight generations, and so if you figure 20 years uh, average for a generation, which really is kind of soon when you think about it, that's going to put the time, the earliest time for the return, right around 400 B.C., maybe a little earlier, but right around 400 B.C. The latest date is going to be somewhere around 200 B.C., so we've got a couple hundred year span. Now, personally, I lean more toward 400 for a couple of reasons. Number one, and first and foremost, um, you've got eight generations from Jehoiachin. If there were more, he would have listed more. And so if you, if you put on a couple hundred more years, you, that's more generations. And so I, I tend to put it more toward the 400 B.C. Now, we should look at what the historical context of this book is. And so in your notes, I've given you some dates. Now, some of those, um, actually, they're kind of all important when you consider... Um, why the book is being written. So to begin with, Saul is appointed king of Israel about 1050 BC. Saul, David, and Solomon are all gonna rule for 40 years apiece. So for 120 years, you have a total of three kings over the combined kingdom. So Saul until 1010, David from 1010 to 970, Solomon from 970 to 930 B.C. Now, a significant event occurs shortly after 930 B.C. Solomon's son Rehoboam becomes king of the United Kingdom. And what happens with Rehoboam? In fact, I should, we should back up a little bit because what happens at for Rehoboam, what happens in his reign is actually a result of something that started during Solomon's reign. What happened in Rehoboam's reign? That is not a rhetorical question. Come on, you guys, I know you know this stuff. Okay, the kingdom is divided. Now, why was the kingdom divided? Okay, Rehoboam is a knucklehead, all right? He's, he's entitled, and he, you know, he's a very proud man. And so Rehoboam ends up getting a lot of the blame, and to a large degree, rightfully so. He was not wise. He chose, rather than listening to the people who could actually steer him in the right direction, he chose to listen to his contemporaries who told him, listen, the people are asking for leniency. You let them know that they should fear you. But the problem originated with Solomon. God didn't do, God didn't take away the kingdom. He didn't break the kingdom apart during Solomon's reign because Solomon was David's son. And so because David had been faithful, God says, I'm not going to do this to you now, but it's coming. And we're going to run into that a lot. And we're going to run into it a lot in this book as it talks about different kings, their reactions to God, are they obedient, are they disobedient, are they submissive, are they rebellious, are they proud, or do they repent? And oftentimes you're going to see, for instance, with Josiah. Josiah, during his reign, they rediscover the law. Josiah has the law read, and he realizes we are in trouble. 
because we have not obeyed. And what does God tell him? Because you have humbled your heart before me. Yes, judgment is coming, but it's not going to come in your day. It came in the day of his in the days of his sons. And so you have the splitting of the kingdom. And so now you've got 10 tribes. It's called the 10 tribes. That's not entirely necessarily accurate. Well, I guess it is if you count Ephraim and Manasseh as Joseph. Levi doesn't really fall into that. So you've got Levi, Judah, and Benjamin in the southern kingdom. And you've got still portions of Levi and the other 10 tribes in the northern kingdom. And then you have this split. Chronicles isn't going to deal with the northern kingdom really at all. He's going to focus on the southern kingdom, and we'll get into why here in a couple minutes. The next significant date is 722 B.C. Now, don't look at your handouts. Look up here. Eyes, eyes here. What happens in 722? Okay. The northern kingdom is taken into captivity by Assyria. And so the northern kingdom, they're taken away, and they're gone. Now, that is true again. Those tribes are, are dispossessed, but a lot of them over time, some of those tribes had migrated down into the southern kingdom anyway. And so when you talk about the southern kingdom, Simeon, for instance, was in the middle of Judah. Their inheritance was in the middle of Judah. And so a lot of them get assimilated into the southern kingdom over time anyway. So 722, the northern kingdom goes away. Then you're going to have Babylon starting to come to call. And so you're going to have three deportations, three visits from Nebuchadnezzar to, uh, to Judah. You have the first deportation in 605. Second is in 597. Third is in 586. And in 586, you have the destruction of the temple. And uh, basically everybody except the poorest of the land, they're taken away to Babylon. 605, Daniel and his three friends are taken to Babylon. 597, that's when Ezekiel goes to exile. And then 586, Jeremiah is left in uh, Judah with the poor, and then he ends up going to Egypt when everybody decides that we need to go to Egypt, even though God told them, don't do that. So in 586, Judah is exiled and the temple is destroyed. Remember that the Jeremiah had received from God a revelation about this exile. And he, in fact, wrote a letter to the exiles in Babylon to tell them about this revelation. And it was going to have a particular length of time. What's the length of time? Seventy years. Daniel, toward the end of his life, reads again that letter and realizes that 70 years is about to run. It's, almost, it's been almost 70 years, which leads to his prayer in Daniel chapter 9. And so you have uh, in 539 B.C., Babylon is conquered by Persia. And in 538, 539, you have the decree of Cyrus. And the decree of Cyrus is, I've decided to authorize the reconstruction of a temple to the God of Israel, which is in Jerusalem. And those of you who want to go, rise up and go. That's the, that's the last portion of the book of Chronicles, the first portion of the book of Ezra. So you have 539, you have the first return. 516 B.C., you have the completion of second temple. So if you're ever reading and you see Solomon's temple and you see second temple, second temple is referring to the one that was built by the returnees and it was finished in 516. What was the second temple like compared to the first? Shadow. That's a great term. It's a shadow of what it used to be. That's why when it was completed, you see some of the old men 
who had seen the original temple. And they look, and on the one hand, there is joy because the temple has been rebuilt. And yet, on the other hand, there is sorrow because it's a shack compared to what it had been. So you have the temple completed in 516 under Zerubbabel. In 458, you have another wave of exiles returned from Babylon. That's under Ezra. And in 444 BC, you have a third wave, and that comes with Nehemiah. The historical context is important to consider because when you're talking about this book, who is it written to? Yeah, it's written to the Jews, but it's written to the ones who have returned. And to what have they returned? See, when you go back to David and to Solomon, they were the head. Now they're the tail. They were on top. They were the dynasty. People came from around the world to see Solomon and to see his his country, to see the wealth, to see the blessings of God on that nation. Now, there's not even a king. They're a province under Persia. They don't have their own ruler. They've got a governor who governs under someone else's thumb. They have a temple, but it's nothing compared to what it had been. They're back in their land. And yet, Yehud, the, that, that province, is about 25 miles square. It's not large at all. It fits in Sacramento County. So what the, the nation that they have is a shadow of what it used to be. And so when you think about the themes of this book, there really is an overriding theme. And that theme is hope. This book is written so that these people who are back in the land and yet enjoying nowhere near the blessings that once upon a time they had, he goes through and he demonstrates God's faithfulness to his covenant, which means his faithfulness ultimately to who? To them. If they will do what? If they will obey. And so, historically, this book was one. If you look in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew Bible, this is one book. In the Hebrew Bible, it is the last book of their Bible, which means if we were to take that and put it in ours, it would be the last book of the Old Testament. It was not a historical book. They did not consider it historical. They considered it to be one of the Kedavim, one of the writings, one of the wisdom books. And so it was on one scroll. Now, it was possible to do that because in Hebrew, you don't put in the consonants. The consonants are determined by the context. Excuse me, I'm sorry, you're right. Thank you, thank you, thank you. The vowels are not written. That's why, for instance, you know, when you see Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, that's the way it's written is Y-H-W-H. It doesn't have, which, by the way, back in the, in the old days, you know, when some of us in here were younger, you didn't hear the term Yahweh. What term did you hear? Jehovah. And so you don't, the vowels weren't written. But in Greek... The vowels are written. Well, if you add a bunch of vowels to every word, what just happened to the length of your document? Oh, yeah, John's back there going, so instead of being on one scroll, now we're going to have to be on two. That's when you get the split into two books, where you have 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles. When When this is translated into the Greek, 
What's the Greek translation of the Old Testament? What's it called? The Septuagint. And so when that is done, that's when this uh, gets expanded into two books. Now, something else happens when they, exp when they translate the Septuagint. In the Hebrew, this book is basically called the Annals or the Events. That's what the book is called. The Septuagint changed that. The Septuagint calls it the things omitted. And that's a crime, frankly. About half of the book of Chronicles is new material. You're not going to find it elsewhere in Samuel or Kings. About half of it you will find duplicated in Samuel or Kings. And so what other part of the Bible would this be very similar to? Where you have multiple records of similar events. The Gospels, right? We just finished studying the book of Luke. How many Gospels, so how many crosses were there at the crucifixion? There's three, right? Jesus is on the center cross, and who's on the outer crosses? A couple of criminals, a couple of thieves. How many of the Gospels record the words of Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? How many? One. How many Gospels? There's three crosses. Three people being crucified. How many of those stories record that one of the thieves repented? One. They're both in Luke. So just because you have multiple events doesn't mean that somehow you have, you know, one's in error and the other's, uh, one's in error and one is correct. It's that the author is pulling on certain threads in order to, be, to demonstrate what he's trying to convey. The chronicler is doing the exact same thing. So some of the things that you'll find in Samuel and in Kings, and by the way, same was true in the Hebrew Bible about Samuel and Kings. Those were originally one book. There was one scroll. And the same thing happened with Samuel and Kings. It happened with Chronicles. You start adding in the vowels, and all of a sudden you can't fit it on one scroll anymore. So you have 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. 2 Samuel deals with David. And so you're going to see a lot of overlap between 1 Chronicles and 2 Samuel. 1 and 2 Kings talk about uh, Solomon and then the northern kingdom and the Judean kings, you're going to see a lot of overlap between 2 Chronicles and, the book of, and both books of Kings. But they don't necessarily convey exactly the same information. So for instance, when you go back to Samuel, you will read of David's sin with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. That's not dealt with in Chronicles at all. Chronicles doesn't deal with that. It's not that, that, he's, that he's whitewashing it. It's not that he's covering it over because, believe me, other things come up. But it's already recorded. It's not germane to what he's trying to do. He's not, it's not relevant to the threads that he's trying to pull through. On the other hand, if you read the book of Kings and you read about Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, what impression do you get of Manasseh from the book of Kings? He is evil incarnate. Chronicles talks about Manasseh being deported. You don't hear about that in Kings at all. He's taken away to Babylon and something happens to him in Babylon. And by the way, that's, that's not Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. This is Babylon. He's being taken away there because Babylon is still part of Assyria at that point. He's carried away, and what does he do when he's there? He repents, and God lets him come back, and he demonstrates fruit of repentance. That's in Chronicles. That's not, that's not included in the book of Kings. 
And so again, he's pulling on different threads in order to get to his point. We get the title of Chronicles from Jerome when he translated the Old Testament into Latin, the Vulgate, because he was the one who titled this book. It's the Chronicles of the Entire Sacred History. Now, he's getting it. Because one of the things, there's a heavy theological emphasis in Chronicles. And it has a lot to do with other themes, with other concepts that are in the Old Testament. We talked about about half of the material in Chronicles is common with Samuel and the book of Kings. There are no direct quotes from Samuel or Kings in the book of Chronicles. But he does refer to a lot of other sources, many of which we no longer have. He refers to writings of several prophets. And a lot of those he gets because he's getting quotations. So for instance, somewhere the prayer of Solomon in 2 Chronicles 7, that had to be written down somewhere, right? in order for him to reproduce it here several hundred years later, several centuries later. So there's uh, a number of writings that were by the prophets. One of the things that the chronicler, the chronicler is very good at, he is a master at synthesizing information. He's able to take information from a number of sources and weave it together again in order to go through and establish what it is that he's trying to communicate. So themes of the book. The overarching theme is hope. Look at where you have been when the people were obedient. There is hope because you can, that can be restored if in fact you will obey. And yet it's not just obey. He, he uses uh, some terms. He, he's, one, he's a big one for all. So for instance, all Israel. That is a common term in this book. All Israel. And when he's talking about all Israel, he means all Israel. All of the tribes. Not just the southern kingdom. There is a lot in this book about a common motif in the Old Testament. It goes back to the law. Obey and be blessed. Disobey and be cursed. Remember when they first came into the kingdom, some of them go up on Mount, I think it's Ebal, and some go up on Mount Gerizim. And the blessings are proclaimed here, and the cursings are proclaimed here. Back in the law, back in Leviticus, Moses told them, listen, when the day comes and you are rebellious, here is the list of things, of judgments that God will bring on you because he's going to turn it up a notch at a time. He's going to bring pressure, and the pressure is to try to bring you back. It's the idea of... of um, Escalation of force. We use that, you, you hear that term used commonly now. If you do not obey a police officer, the first, the first thing that he does to you is not pull out a gun and shoot you. It's, there's verbal commands. Then there are hands-on. Then there are other types of weapons, some types of non-lethal force. And then the last one is lethal force. The same thing happens with God. Exile was the nuclear option. Exile was not the first option. There was famine. There was drought. There was, I'll bring someone else in to conquer you, and you can be slaves for a while. There were all these other, there was pestilence. There was all kinds of other judgments. And if they wouldn't turn, wouldn't turn, wouldn't turn, wouldn't turn, then there was exile. But what was also promised in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you'll end up hearing a repeat of it in Chronicles. I'll give you a hint. It's with Solomon. 
It's a verse that gets quoted, and I, I really I don't like it when it's quoted for our country because it has nothing to do with our country, but it had everything to do with theirs. If my people, which is called by my name, right, will humble themselves. If you've been rebellious, if you will humble yourselves and seek my face and turn from your wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, right? And I'll forgive and I will heal your land. Obey me and be blessed. Disobey me and be cursed. And it's not just obedience. It is obedience from the heart. Flip in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 31. We'll start in verse 20. Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good, right, and true before Yahweh his God. And every work which he began in the service of the house of God in law and in commandment to seek his God, he did with all his heart and succeeded. After these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and encamped against the fortified cities and thought to break into them for himself. Then Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he had set his face to make war on Jerusalem. And they go through and they do some different things in order to fight against that. Jump down in chapter 32 to, let's go to verse 16. His servants, and these are Sennacherib's servants, the Assyrian, spoke further against Yahweh God and against his servant Hezekiah. He also wrote letters to reproach Yahweh, the God of Israel, and to speak against him, saying, as the gods of the nations of the lands have not delivered their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. And they called this out with a loud voice in the language of Judah to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to instill fear and terrify them so that they might capture the city. And they spoke of the God of Jerusalem as of the gods of the peoples of the earth, the work of men's hands. So what's he doing? As he's relating this story, he's, he's, he's drawing a distinction here. Here you have Sennacherib and his cronies coming in, and they're trying, they are blaspheming Yahweh. They are speaking against him. They're reducing Yahweh to the level of one of the other idols of peoples that the Assyrians have conquered. And he, they're going to contrast him with Hezekiah. Verse 20, But King Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, prayed about this, and cried out to heaven. In Kings, it talks about how there was a letter that was written. They take the letter into the temple. They spread it out before God. And basically, you hear, not the echo, Acts would be the echo of this. In Acts chapter 4, when they're starting to endure suffering. They're starting to endure persecution because the, the apostles are being beaten by the Jews. And they go back and they say, look, here are the threats. What do the people do? They go before God. Oh, Lord, hear their threats against us. And what? Make us bold to speak as we ought to. That's an echo of what's happening here with Hezekiah. He goes in, he spreads the letter out before God. Lord, see what it is that they're coming to do. See what it is that they're threatening. And what does God do? He sends one angel. And you think, one. There's 185,000 Assyrians camped outside Jerusalem to lay siege to the city. In one night, that one angel wipes out 185,000 Assyrians. Now, I know I've told you some, some of you this before. That's how many Marines there are in the United States Marine Corps. 185 or 186,000. 
He wiped out the United States Marine Corps overnight. And Sennacherib goes home with his tail between his legs and gets murdered by his sons while he's in his temple, in the temple worshiping his God. God's been faithful. He was faithful in the time of Saul, even though Saul was rebellious. And they lost to the Philistines as a result. And yet, what did God do? Well, he raises up David. And then he raises up Solomon. And then through a series of kings, as he lays out the history, God has been faithful. And when they have been obedient, they have been blessed. And when they've been disobedient, well, they've suffered, they've enjoyed the consequences of that as well. So, because God has been faithful in the past, if we, since that, that covenant is a conditional covenant, right? If they will obey, then they will be blessed. It's a call back to obedience so that you would be able to enjoy the blessings of Yahweh. And again, the importance of obeying with all of your heart. Don't be like those. Jesus quotes this verse with the, with the Pharisees, right? Yeah, you people honor me with your lips, but your what? Your heart is far from me. You also see much in this book to speaking of the temple. Now, again, the temple, as we look at that, we don't have uh, this in our DNA. We do not consider the temple we, we would not consider this building as the Jews would consider the temple. Because where does God dwell? He dwells in our hearts. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. The temple for them represented the dwelling place of God. Now, God's not inhabiting their temple as he did Solomon's. And in fact, there's something missing from this temple, specifically from the Holy of Holies. What's missing? The Ark of the Covenant. Exactly, because where did the Shekinah glory reside? On the, above the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And so they do not enjoy the presence of God as they once did. That presence left, that's talked about in Ezekiel where Ezekiel sees the vision of the, of the presence of God leaving the temple. That's God leaving his people because of their continued rebellion as the precursor for exile. There's a lot of folks who look at Chronicles, and for whatever reason, and truly I don't understand it, I really don't. They look at Chronicles and they go, yeah, well, what's the big deal? It's a huge deal. And again, just picture yourself as a returned exile. Can you imagine what a, a drink of cool water this would be to someone in a desert? There's hope. That can be this, what has been, can be again. Now, there's another reason why a lot of people just don't want to go through Chronicles. It's because there's nine chapters of genealogies. Now, genealogies for us don't mean anything, right? We're Americans. Doesn't matter who your father was. Doesn't matter who his father was. You can make a name for yourself in our country and... It's, it's independent of heritage. That's why we don't have kings, right? The president isn't the son of the former president. That's, it's, not, it's not a monarchy. But that's not the way it was for them. You see, again, remember who this book is written to. This book is written to the people of God. And you needed to be able to show your heritage. In fact, 
flip over to the right just a little bit to the book of Ezra, chapter 2. Just a couple of pages from where we were in 2 Chronicles 32. So, gee whiz, when you get to Ezra chapter 2, here's a long list of exiles who have returned. So go to verse 61. Of the sons of the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite, and he was called by their name, these searched in their genealogical records, but they could not be found. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. If you were going to serve it as a priest, you had to demonstrate that you were from the line of who? Aaron, not just Levi. You had to be from the line of Aaron in order to be a priest. And if you couldn't demonstrate that, you couldn't serve as a priest. Now, like I said, in our country, in our culture, that's really not an issue. But there are places where it is. So for instance, I have, I've happened to possess one of these. This is a blue card. This blue card identifies that I am a member of a particular Indian tribe. Now, in order to demonstrate that I was a member of this tribe, I had to show that I was related by blood to someone who was on a census of that tribe done back in the very early 1900s. My mother's father is on that census. And so I had to prove that I am related, but that my mom was related to him, his daughter, his oldest child, and that I was related to my mom. And I did that with birth certificates, not just any birth certificates. These had to be state-certified birth certificates. County birth certificate wouldn't work. And so I had to be able to show that in order to demonstrate that I am related to, these, to the, that man by blood. The same thing was true for Israelites. Are you related and not just to Abraham. It's through Isaac and it's through Jacob. It does go back to Abraham, but again, it's not everyone that was related to Abraham. So if you think about a tree, and a tree is actually a very appropriate um, metaphor for Israel. That's the one that Paul uses in the book of Romans, where he talks about part of that tree was broken off so that others who were not a part of the natural tree could be grafted in. Now, those others include who? Us, exactly. So if the tree is the people, the roots are the past generations. This is where you have come from, and that is where the genealogies come in. So in chapter 1, verses 1 to 27, you, it goes all the way back to Adam. And in the first half of chapter 1, it's Adam to Abraham. So they go through, and this very closely mirrors what you see in Genesis. Uh, the last half of chapter 1 is Abraham to Jacob, but he focuses on Ishmael, Esau, and Edom. He's talking about, here are the other descendants of Abraham, but then he's going to, we, we've, we've talked about them, now we're going to come through here and we're going to focus in on Isaac and then we're going to focus in on Jacob. Chapter 2, you start with, there's the generations of David. Here's how David came to be. Why David. Think about it again. This, this is a theological book. So why is he going to really focus on David? Because Messiah is going to come from the line of David. Exactly. 
So here we go. And there's another reason, too. David represents the zenith. Okay, David and Solomon, those, they're the zenith of Israel. That's Israel in their heyday. That's when they were in their prime. Chapter 3, the sons of David. And that's where we're going to get the, uh, all those extensions from Jehoiachin. That's at the end of chapter 3. Chapter 4, he's going to start zooming in. Now we're going to get Judah. And from chapters 4 all the way through chapter 7, the end of chapter 7, you've got a list of genealogies from a number of the tribes. The half-tribe of Manasseh gets mentioned twice because half the tribe of Manasseh is east of Jordan and half was in west of Jordan where the actual promised land was, right? And so uh, you've got Levi, Issachar, Benjamin, Naphtali, Ephraim, Asher, Simeon, Reuben, Gad. There's no list of Zebulun and there's no list of Dan. And Naphtali gets a whopping one verse. Now, why so little on those? I don't know. Because they are included when you look at the distribution of land in the book of Ezekiel, where it talks about where are the different tribes going to reside during the millennial kingdom. They're included there. And if I remember right, I believe that Dan was in the far, far north of uh, the northern kingdom. They were, so that's why when you see, when you talk about from Dan to Beersheba, Dan was in the far north, Beersheba in the far south. Gunner. Okay, so can I digress for a few minutes and give a few high points about Jesse? Well, okay, so Jesse is in the line. Um, you know, I, I don't know that I would say that there was something in there that was particularly outstanding necessarily about Jesse. In fact, in the line of Judah, um, that's not exactly the, uh, the who's who of, of genealogies. Uh, in fact, in Chronicles, well, here, let's go back. So let's go back to 1 Chronicles. And let's go to chapter... Yeah, he's there. Um, but boy, I tell you, when you start to look... In fact, let's go back to chapter 2. These are the sons of, chapter 2, verse 1. These are the sons of Israel, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Joseph, Benjamin, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The sons of Judah were Ur, Onan, and Shelah. These three were born to him by Bathshua the Canaanitess. And Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of Yahweh, so he put him to death. He doesn't even talk about the second one. He was killed too by God. So who did the line of Judah come through? It came through Judah, but who were the children born to? You want to talk about scandal? Tamar, his daughter-in-law. Now, I thought that was against the law. It is. That's where Messiah's line comes through. And so, again, this, uh, when you look, Judah, uh, Judah wasn't a great guy by any stretch of the imagination. And you'll find that true among many of his descendants. And so, isn't it interesting, again, you would think that if we were trying to you know, make something up, what light would we want to paint everybody in, especially in the Messianic line? Oh, I mean, they'd, they'd all have halos. Has anybody else in here noticed? This bugs the daylights out of me, by the way. It started right after the election. 
Anybody ever notice that many pictures taken of the president, his head is always surrounded by the seal on the background. It makes him look like he has a halo. <laughs> Drives me nuts. But isn't that what you would expect if someone's trying to paint a story about Messiah? You, would, you know, it would be the best of the best are in his family. Those babies didn't cry, even when they had a bad diaper. They were just, they were always pleasant. You know, the people were the, just morally upright. You would look at them, they're pillars of the community and everything. I mean, these are just outstanding, incredible people. And then you meet Judah and Tamar, and, 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 and it just goes down the list of people that are in the line of Christ. Look at the apostles. There's a who's who of nobodies. Because not many wise, not many noble, right? God specializes in the nobodies. These, these genealogies are there so that these people who are returning realize these are my people. I come from these people. God is my God. Now, he's the God of Israel. What the chronicler is trying to get these people to realize is that, is he your God? Have you ever noticed in reading Kings, how did Saul, when he talked to Samuel, how did Saul refer to God? It was always the Lord your God. How did David refer to him? The Lord, I'll hit it again, my God, right? And then chapter 9 in 1 Chronicles. There's a last list. And that's the generations of the returnees. So, who's coming back? And we've got a list of these people who have returned. And some of the people who have returned are Levitical priests. So we have, it's hailing outside. So there's, there's the priesthood is here. The proper priesthood. And a temple and we're back in our land. What are they missing? Well, they're missing God himself, and there's another piece that they're missing. They don't have their king. And guess what? They still don't. They're still under judgment because they have not yet fully returned. But what do we know? Because we have the end of the story. They're going to. And all of the promises that God made to them are going to be fulfilled. So now, are we going to go through the genealogies in depth? No. So many of these names, here's the only place where you're going to find them. But who knew them? God did. Every last one. God has been faithful. He has been faithful in the past. He's faithful now. He'll be faithful in the future. That's the message of this book. So the encouragement to them, then, is obey but obey with a whole heart. Obey with joy. Because there it is that you will find blessing. Questions? Now, we covered a lot of ground this morning. There's no questions? Come on, it can't have been that good. You trying to raise your hand back there, John? 
you look like you're... Okay, so the question is, there's no ark in the temple, so was it wrong or was it pointless to build the temple? No, it was not. Again, for them, the temple was the center of life for a Jew. It was a picture. Now, so what they had then was the picture. They don't have the actual substance, but they do have the picture. And so uh, the idea is, is that this is... Uh, number one, it's a monument to him. Uh, it's a picture of his dwelling place amongst us, even though, in fact, he's not in residence as it is. In fact, if you go to London or go to England, I, I've never seen this, but I understand this to be true, and maybe somebody's seen it. When uh, it used to be the queen, now it would be the king. When the king is in residence at, at a particular castle, there is a certain flag that's flown over the castle, and that flag is only flown when the, when the monarch is actually present. So for the, for the Jews, you would not be able to raise that flag over Second Temple because God was not in residence there. But it's still, uh, it's still his uh, temple, the picture of his dwelling place. Gunner. There's a scepter in Parliament that's... Okay. On a stand or something there? Okay. Susie. Okay, so, so I think Right, cuz the temp cuz the tabernacle's the gospel, right? Right. So Susie's point is, you see in, in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel that you have the foreshadowings of the new covenant, where uh, it's not going to be under the old covenant. And so God's starting to make that transition to where he's not just going to be residing in a physical place in the temple. He's going to be residing in, each, in individual believers through the Holy Spirit. Uh, and there is that. Now, even then, how did Jesus refer to the temple? My father's house. You my father's house is supposed to be a place of prayer, and you've turned it into a robber's den, right? So, the idea, again, it was about God. And so, again, he's not physically dwelling there in the second temple, but it's the picture thereof. And for them, again, there's that connection that God is our God. We have a special relationship with him. At least we're supposed to.
Okay? So, again, the point is, is that uh, in Solomon's prayer, he talks about if a Jew is in the remotest part of the planet, in fact, it's in exile, if he turns and he even faces toward Jerusalem, toward, the, toward God, that God would hear him. Now, in fact, someone give me an example that's an Old Testament example of that very thing. Pardon me? Well, 21 is, is early on. I'm thinking of later. In fact, it's going to be, um, it's a little bit before the Chronicler wrote. We're going to talk about it at length next week in the main service. Daniel. When Daniel is commanded no longer to pray, anybody who prays to anybody except you, O king, for 30 days shall be thrown into the lion's den. What does, what does Daniel do? He goes in his house, he goes upstairs, he opens the window which faces where? Toward Jerusalem. So that he can pray. And so again, that idea, now, now there's one big difference, there's one huge thing about Daniel. How did Daniel pray? How did Daniel obey? He did it with all of his heart, right? That was a characteristic of his life was that he was wholly committed to God. And in fact, I'll take the lion's den if that's the punishment for being faithful to my God. I'll take that. So again, it's... I don't think we can... That's why it was so crushing for the Jews when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple. That was unthinkable. Surely God would prevent that. No, God wouldn't prevent it in the face of continued, continued, continued rebellion and disobedience. There's going to be consequences, and I will take away from you. In fact, uh, <laughs> Ezekiel, when he was in exile, that was uh, how it was portrayed. Son of man, I'm going to take away from you the desire of your eyes with a stroke, Ezekiel 24. Ezekiel's wife dies. She was precious to him. And God was using him as an object lesson, and the people knew it. So when she died, and, and, and the command to him, you shall not mourn, you shall not weep, and in the morning he did as, as he was commanded and the people came to him and said what? What does this mean to us? Because they'd figured out that when God was doing something to Ezekiel because it was a picture of something that was coming to them. And the message was just as I took his wife who was precious to him so I'm going to take the temple from you. And in fact, Ezekiel had been struck dumb. Ezekiel couldn't speak unless the first words out of his mouth were, thus saith the Lord. For years, what freed him from that sentence? Son of man, on the day when you hear it, that the temple's been destroyed, you'll be able to talk again. And so, for them, the temple was the center of life. At least, in theory. That's not the way they treated it. Nor was it the way they treated it in Jesus' day. Now, we are not in danger, I don't think, of getting sucked into worship of a physical place. But I think it is important for us to remember how are we supposed to serve God? All of our hearts. Not distracted. Not distracted. So there's a mirror for us to look into here as well. All right, let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word and how you um, 
even when talking about history and talking of kings and things that were done, things that were not done, how they were done, how they were not done. All of these things have been recorded for our example and how much we need that. Because, Father, we are, we are still prone. We have your indwelling Holy Spirit, and yet we are still prone to wander. Thank you that you have secured our salvation. If it weren't for you securing it, we'd lose it in a heartbeat. Thank you that it doesn't depend on us. We've been called, we've been redeemed, and we're kept. But, Lord, do please help us to be faithful. Help us to be those that would serve you with all of our hearts, with all of our strength. That we would be driven out of love and devotion for you. In gratitude for all of the things that you've done for us. You've done in the past, you're doing today. And so, Father, as we come to worship today, may we worship you with all of our hearts. As the Lord Jesus, for you, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Thank you that you are going to reign forever and ever. In Christ's name, amen.